Welcome to another Poetica podcast from RN. I'm Justine Sloan-Lees, bringing you a new four-part series called Transverse. The experience of long-distance travel has always had a contemplative element. Whether it be the sea voyages of past centuries, or the wonder of flying at previously unimaginable speeds miles above the Earth's surface, something in the fact of being neither here nor there induces a sense of otherness that is deeply meditative, and poets are certainly not immune to this. In this series, we'll be taking to the rails and road, as well as the sea and air. From the myth of Icarus and Daedalus, through the detailed studies of birds by Leonardo da Vinci, to the darling children in Peter Pan, mankind has longed for the ability to fly. The first powered flight by the Wright brothers is one of the defining moments of the 20th century, and the practice it gave birth to, aviation, was named from the Latin for bird. This program, Planes of Thought, is a reflection on the experience of soaring above the earth, just like the birds. For once you have tasted flight, you will walk the earth with your eyes turned skywards, for there you have been, and there you will long to return. Leonardo da Vinci The earth teaches us more about ourselves than all the books in the world, because it is resistant to us. Self-discovery comes when man measures himself against an obstacle. To attain it, he needs an implement. He needs a carpenter's plane or a plough. Little by little, as he walks behind the plough, the farmer forces out a few of nature's secrets and the truth which he uncovers is universal. In the same way, the aeroplane, the implement of the airline companies, brings man face to face with all the old problems. In my mind's eye, I still have the image of my first night flight in Argentina. It was a dark night, with only occasional scattered lights glittering like stars on the plane. Each one, in that ocean of shadows, was a sign of the miracle of consciousness. In one home, people were reading, or thinking, or sharing confidences. In another, perhaps, they were searching through space, wearying themselves with the mathematics of the Andromeda Nebula. In another, they were making love. These small flames shone far apart in the landscape, demanding their fuel. Even the most unassuming of them, the flame of the poet, the teacher, or the carpenter. But among these living stars, how many closed windows? How many extinct stars? How many sleeping men? We must surely seek unity. We must surely seek to communicate with some of those fires burning far apart in the landscape. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry Fasten your seatbelts. Rolf Jacobson. 
to sit squeezed tight with your knees up to your chin, high above the thunderstorms and the current bushes. Such is our fate when we set out for distant shores. A glimpse of moss-like Ireland, mottled as in a well-worn atlas, and quick as lightning, they pull the wool blanket over it again, so we'll be spared the trouble of seeing all of it. And under the vast blanket, grey after many washings, lies the sea as well. Earth, the water star's wrinkled skin, which also avoids our stares. And then comes the night, with Jupiter, Andromeda and Sirius. And whoever by chance has the window seat can look out at the dark, see galaxies, distant cloudy milky ways, outer spaces mainsprings that make each heart tick and go, tick-tock, tick-tock, within everything living, everything that moves, on all planets. People, elephants, even in the silver fox's narrow cage, it ticks and goes, it pounds and goes, in terror or safety, love or hate. Here, too, in the 139 living beings, 15,000 feet above the Atlantic and only 60 nautical miles east of Labrador, inside a floating room that's like a theatre, where the audience has dozed off during the performance, until a slight vibration in the fuselage sets the hearts beating faster again, tick, tick, tock, but only forward, forward, in a life none of us knows the conclusion of. Since each second you live is like the point of an arrow, your own time, where you've already gotten older after the first line in the poem. So by all means, turn the page. But don't get up and leave, because we'll be arriving soon in the new era, where everything will soon be made of glass, transparent, for we've acquired new eyes, hard ones. You see almost everything that happens on Earth, and your delight gets slowly subdued. No smoking allowed. Please fasten your seatbelts. And then the landing, down to the rain, the escalators and the waiting lines for taxis. It is your life I'm writing about. Filippo Tommaso Marinetti. Sitting on the fuel tank of an aircraft, my stomach warmed by the pilot's head, I sense the ridiculous inanity of the old syntax inherited from Homer. The pressing need to liberate words, to drag them out of their prison in the Latin period. This is what the whirling propeller told me. Suddenly, by the effort of a generation, and the cumulative effect of the discoveries of the century, we have been endowed with the bird's eye view. The airplane takes possession of the sky, the various skies of the earth. The airplane, symbol of the new age. The airplane, advance guard of the conquering armies of the new age. The airplane arouses our energies and our faith. 
One night in the spring of 1909, I heard a noise which for the first time filled the entire sky of Paris. Until then, men had been aware of one voice only from above, bellowing or thundering, the voice of the storm. I craned my neck out of the window to catch sight of this unknown messenger, the Comte de Lambert, having succeeded in taking off at Juvisy, had descended towards Paris and circled the Eiffel Tower at a height of 300 metres. It was miraculous. It was mad. Our dreams then could turn into reality, however daring they might be. It was a great joy that night in Paris. In spring 1909, men had captured the Chimera and driven above the city. Aircraft, Le Corbusier. From the bridge, Hart Crane. Stars scribble on our eyes the frosty sagas, the gleaming cantos of unvanquished space. Oh, sinewy silver biplane, nudging the winds with us. There, from Kill Devil's Hills at Kitty Hawk, two brothers in their twin ship left the dune. Warping the gale, the right wind wrestlers veered capeward, then blading the wind's flank, banked and spun. What ciphers risen from prophetic script? What marathons new set between the stars? The Great War came. Man had acquired the bird's eye view. What an unexpected gift to survey the armies in front from above. But the bird can be hawk or dove. It became a hawk. What an unexpected gift to be able to set off at night under cover of darkness and a way to sow death with bombs upon sleeping towns. But the hawk swoops on its prey and seizes it in its beak and claws. What an unexpected gift to be able to come from above with a machine gun at the beak's tip, spitting death fanwise on men crouched in holes. War was the hellish laboratory in which aviation became adult and was shaped to flawless perfection. Le Corbusier. An Irish airman foresees his death. W.B. Yeats. I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. My country is Kiltartan Cross. My countrymen, Kiltartan's poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public man nor cheering crowds. A lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The years to come seemed waste of breath, a waste of breath the years behind in balance with this life, this death.
I've been following clouds as though my life depended on it. Peripheries. A wingtip drawing its arc over the valley. Zurich clasping a river to itself. This plane travel is the riskiest thing I do. Taking on atmosphere. Leaving the planet orbiting. Frosted. Salutary. The ground is only minutes away. We dip over yellowed hills. Real fields, not the picture book swathes of the in-flight magazine. Again we tilt. Hills lift in and out. The plane carrying us like a faithful animal. Its lean shadow ahead on the ground. While we will it down. Beyond that limbo. Where we were happy enough. Coming into Zurich, Catherine Gallagher. The End of Travelling, Paul Hetherington. Huge and remote, the silver plane basks in the night in a luminous haze, before uneasy rituals of farewell that follow lovers, husbands, wives, Caught up in a world where each departure's closer to the end of travelling. Where dreams become nothing at the finish of an ordinary flight. Solid ground rises to meet every moment of soaring freedom. The jolt of wheels on a tarmac. Those approaching. Unfamiliar lights. From The Fun of It, Amelia Earhart. Dad, please ask that officer how long it takes to fly, I said, pointing out a doggy young man in uniform. Apparently it differs with different people, my good parent reported after some investigation, though the average seems to be from five to ten hours. Please find out how much lessons cost, I continued. The answer to that is a thousand dollars. But why do you want to know? I wasn't really sure. Anyway, I felt in my bones that a hop would come soon. The field where I first went up is a residential suburb of Los Angeles. Then it was simply an open space on Wilshire Boulevard, surrounded by oil wells. As soon as we left the ground, I knew I myself had to fly. Miles away, I saw the ocean and the Hollywood Hills seem to peep over the edge of the cockpit as if they were already friends. Perhaps the greatest joy of flying is the magnificence of the view. If visibility is good, the passenger seems to see the whole world. Colours stand out and the shades of the earth, unseen from below, form an endless magic carpet. I have spoken of the effect of height in flattening the landscape always a phenomenon in the eyes of the air novitiate. Even mountains grow humble and a really rough terrain appears comparatively smooth. Trees look like bushes and automobiles like flat-backed bugs. A second plane, which may be flying a few hundred feet above the ground, as seen from a greater altitude, looks as if it were just skimming the surface. All vertical measurement is foreshortened. 
The world seen from the air is laid out in squares. Especially striking is the checkerboard effect wherever one looks down on what his brother man has done. Country or city, it is the same. Only the rectangles are of different sizes. Planes Landing. Jamie Grant. White metal tubes contain whole villages. They descend this still white mist, their noise dazzling to lanes and chimney pots like a memory of light. Our hotel's top floor hides in fog that spreads across the country like an ice cap. Through double glass windows, we watch the jets subside onto pale nets of cobweb hedges. Their slanting tails go down behind skeleton elms that hang round the village roofs like television masts. Where the hedges intersect are small vacant fields. Their water green, vague as holes in a fishnet, colours leached into spider-thick cloud. We discover we're both thinking about the crowd of strangers, all gazing straight ahead down a tunnel of chairs. That's also the tunnel of self. Their belts click tight, sloping down the aisle, discreet as a hostess, sticky as cobwebs. The same thought nets each separate mind, each passenger imagining death. Muzak spreading like ice. Look out the window of the plane during flight. Below is a vague array of generic sites. Rivers, mountains, agricultural parcels, towns and cities, cloud cover and horizon. Rising sun, setting sun, a plane or two flying above or below. Except for the occasional wonder of the world, the scene lacks impact. It is dreamlike, but without compelling narrative. You might object that a trip across the ocean in a commercial liner is not different, only emptier and longer. But on the ocean, one sees the water and the waves and feels their impact. One remembers maps and globes. One recognises one's place in a microcosm with a daily round of events, on a voyage that makes no pretense of instantaneity. Flying intimates that there is no journey, only trajectory. Martha Rossler. Ark. Luke Davies. Down again through slanting sun into holding patterns and Dublin rain. The plain banks languidly, the Wicklow mountains shine. There is the moon again. The clouds wait shyly at the coast. We make small circles on the great arc. It occurs to me that God is love. The long dusk darkens into dark. Last rays. The fields of horse studs flash like lakes. This morning was Athens. 
three hundred of us descend and the curve of our loneliness lessens. It was not dying. Everybody died. It was not dying. We had died before in the routine crashes, and our fields called up the papers, wrote home to our folks, and the rates rose all because of us. We died on the wrong page of the almanac, scattered on mountains 50 miles away, diving on haystacks, fighting with a friend, we blazed up on the lines we never saw. We died like aunts, or pets, or foreigners. When we left high school, nothing else had died for us to figure we had died like. In our new planes, with our new crews, we bombed the ranges by the desert or the shore. Fired at towed targets, waited for our scores, and turned into replacements, and woke up one morning over England operational. It wasn't different. But if we died, it was not an accident, but a mistake, but an easy one for anyone to make. We read our mail and counted up our missions. In bombers named for girls, we burned the cities we had learned about in school, till our lives wore out. Our bodies lay among the people we had killed and never seen. When we lasted long enough, they gave us medals. When we died, they said, our casualties were low. They said, here are the maps. We burned the cities. It was not dying. No, not ever dying. But the night I died, I dreamed that I was dead. And the cities said to me, why are you dying? We are satisfied if you are, but why did I die? Losses, Randall Gerald. The death of the ball turret gunner. From my mother's sleep, I fell into the state and I hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze. Six miles from earth, Loosed from its dream of life, I woke to black flak and the nightmare fighters. When I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose. My dad had this habit of picking at a shrapnel scar on the back of his neck every time he heard a plane go over our land. He'd be stooped over in the orchard, repairing the irrigation pipes or the tractor, and he'd hear a plane then slowly straighten up, run his hand through his hair, wipe the sweat off on his thigh, squint deep into the sky, fix the plane with one eye, and begin picking slowly at the back of his neck. Just stare and pick. The scar was the mark of a World War II mission over Italy, 
a tiny piece of metal remained embedded just under the surface. What got me was the reflexive nature of this picking gesture. Every time he heard a plane, he went for the scar. And he didn't stop picking at it until he'd identified the aircraft to his complete satisfaction. If a formation of P-51s went over, he would almost climb an avocado tree with ecstasy. Each identification was marked by a distinct emotional tone in his voice. There were planes that had let him down in the heat of combat, and he would spit in their direction. On the other hand, a B-54 got a sombre, almost religious tone. Usually, just the minimal code number was uttered. B-54, he would say. Then, satisfied, he would drag his eyes back down to earth and return to his work. It seemed odd to me how a man who loved the sky so much could also love the land. Sam Shepard, Motel Chronicles Alain de Botton, The Art of Travel Seen from a car park beside 09L-27R, as the north runway is known to pilots, the 747 appears at first as a small brilliant white light, a star dropping towards Earth. It has been in the air for 12 hours. It took off from Singapore at dawn. It flew over the Bay of Bengal, Delhi, the Afghan desert and the Caspian Sea. It traced a course over Romania, the Czech Republic and southern Germany before beginning its descent, so gently that few passengers would have noticed a change of tone in the engines above the grey-brown turbulent waters off the Dutch coast. It followed the Thames over London, turned north near Hammersmith, where the flaps began to unfold, pivoted over Uxbridge and straightened course over Slough. From the ground, the white light gradually takes shape as a vast two-storied body with four engines suspended like earrings beneath implausibly long wings. In the light rain, clouds of water form a veil behind the plane on its matronly progress towards the airfield. Beneath it are the suburbs of Slough. It is three in the afternoon. In detached villas, kettles are being filled. A television is on in a living room with the sound switched off. Green and red shadows move silently across walls. The everyday. And above Slough is a plane that a few hours ago was flying over the Caspian Sea. Caspian Sea, Slough. The plane, a symbol of worldliness, carrying within itself a trace of all the lands it has crossed its eternal mobility offering an imaginative counterweight to feelings of stagnation and confinement. This morning, the plane was over the Malay Peninsula, a place name in which there linger the smells of guava and sandalwood. And now, a few metres above the earth which it has avoided for so long, the plane appears motionless, its nose raised upwards, seeming to pause before its 16 rear wheels meet the tarmac, 
with a blast of smoke that makes manifest its speed and weight. Plane Journey Momentums. Catherine Gallagher. The danger of travelling is how it takes you over. Caught in that today dress you wear, not for frills but for comfort, in the confines of an air tunnel marked by arrows on in-flight maps. You read, pick up earphones, settle to a book, tell yourself that any disasters are swaying outside this steady balloon where you balance the day, maybe humouring your child who is flying for the first time. So much for trying to forget your innate strangeness to this absurd, transitory life you've taken on. These dizzying heights, circuits of chat, odd secrets laced with reserve. And everything blended for your newest neighbour, as though you'd been living side by side for a lifetime. Few seconds in life are more releasing than those in which a plane ascends to the sky. Looking out of a window from inside a machine standing stationary at the beginning of a runway, we face a vista of familiar proportions. A road, oil cylinders, grass and hotels with copper-tinted windows. The earth as we have always known it. Where we make slow progress, even with the help of a car where calf muscles and engines strain to reach the summit of hills, where half a mile ahead or less, there is almost always a line of trees or buildings to restrict our view. Then, suddenly, accompanied by the controlled rage of the engines, with only a slight tremor from glasses in the galley, we rise fluently into the atmosphere, and an immense horizon opens up across which we can wander without impediment. A journey which on earth would have taken an afternoon, can be accomplished with an infinitesimal movement of the eye. There is psychological pleasure in this takeoff too, for the swiftness of the plane's ascent is an exemplary symbol of transformation. The display of power can inspire us to imagine analogous, decisive shifts in our own lives, to imagine what we too might one day surge above, much that now looms over us. The new vantage point lends order and logic to the landscape. Roads curve to avoid hills. Rivers trace paths to lakes. Pylons lead from power stations to towns. Streets that from Earth seemed laid out without thought emerge as well-planned grids. The eye attempts to match what it can see with what the mind knows should be there, like a reader trying to decipher a familiar book in a new language. And to think, that all along, hidden from our sight, our lives were this small. The world we live in, but almost never see. The way we must appear to the hawk and to the gods. Through sparkling visibility, the bombers came to the city. Outspread, unsleeping, on the bright Tuesday in early September. Twin-isled, wide-bodied Boeings both, American and United, silver and dark blue, 
They delivered their cargo at intervals into the heart of the world. 20 minutes earlier, America tuned in as ever to the breakfast show. At first thought the breaking news was nothing more serious than the most bizarre air crash in the nation's history. An American Airlines 767 en route to LA had by some means succeeded in burying itself in the North Tower of the World Trade Center between the 94th and the 99th floors. The Trade Center towers had been engineered only to withstand the impact of a 707, the largest plane at the time of the building's conception in the late 1960s. But the 767 was a bigger aircraft with a longer range. It carried more fuel and had now, in addition to its kinetic energy, deposited 31,000 litres of kerosene into the heart of the North Tower. 20 minutes later, as a second, darker 767 approached the South Tower, the world, now watching on television, suddenly saw the potential terrors that air transport contained. A two-engined, wide-bodied airliner, an object familiar from business meetings and Thanksgiving travels, and made by a trusted firm whose corporate slogan at the time was bringing people together, transformed into a bomber. That second plane, tanked up for a long flight from Boston to Los Angeles, spooled up its turbofans as it passed the Statue of Liberty and at full thrust, a couple of hundred meters above Battery Park at the southern tip of Manhattan, bank left as it lined up with the unscathed tower. The Boeing now seemed less an example of America's industrial expertise than an object wholly military, which was striking the south tower of the World Trade Center with the force of a tactical nuclear device. It took roughly six-tenths of a second for the jet, traveling at more than 600 kilometers per hour, to come to rest inside, for the inferno to fall out of the other side of the building into the blue and for America to have a sense of the firepower visiting her from seemingly innocent civilian technology. David Pascoe, Aircraft. Boarding a plane. You play dice with travel. Though numbers are on your side, and you sit strapped in. 40,000 feet. You are a prayer, however you deny it. Through the window, those gleams could be stars. Could be some implacable universe. Aeroplane. Thomas Shapcott. The flight of a plane provides a spectacle with a lesson, a philosophy, no longer a delight of the senses. When the eye is five feet or so above the ground, flowers and trees have dimension, a measure relative to human activity, proportion. In the air from above, it is a wilderness indifferent to our thousand-year-old ideas, a fatality of cosmic elements and events. The elements are a frightening incubus. 
from the plain there is no pleasure but a long concentrated mournful meditation look obuzi despite its seeming mundanity the ritual of flying remains indelibly linked even in secular times to the momentous themes of existence and their refractions in the stories of the world's religions we have heard about too many ascensions too many voices from heaven too many airborne angels and saints to ever be able to regard the business of flight from an entirely pedestrian perspective as we might say the act of traveling by train notions of the divine the eternal and the significant accompany us covertly onto our craft haunting the reading aloud of the safety instructions the weather announcements made by our captains and most particularly our lofty views of the gentle curvature of the earth alan de botton night at an airport david ignato just as the signal tower lights flash on and off so the world recedes and comes on giving the illusion of end and beginning before light there was darkness in which the plane kept roaring in for landing particles of dust rise in the wind's path and settle obscurely when the wind has passed we have our beginnings in breeze or storm dancing or swirling and are still when the wind is still we have earth and return to it everlasting as a thought And in this Poetica podcast from RN, you've been listening to Planes of Thought. Our readers were Meredith Penman, Dino Manica, and Nicholas Bell. The sound engineer was John Jacobs, and the program was produced by me, Justine Sloan-Lees. Visit the Poetica website for the list of poems and other readings or to leave a comment. In our next Poetica podcast, we continue our series Transverse and take to the rails with train lines